0: 2020 is going to be remembered for coronavirus, largest unemployment in the history of the US, the <laughs> deep, weird recession, and then Tiger King. <laughs> Tiger King. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> As Faraj mentioned, 2020 has definitely not been the year we all expected. But if we've learned anything so far from our previous guests, it's to continue to expect the unexpected, adapt accordingly, and keep an eye out for opportunity. My name is Ronak, and you're listening to the Up and Coming podcast, brought to you by the UT Dallas Entrepreneurship Club. We sit down with founders, investors, and thought leaders every single week to highlight their stories and key lessons. Alongside my co-host, Harshini Rolapali, today we dive into the budding cannabis industry with Faraj Mayan, serial entrepreneur and CEO of Canna an employee onboarding and management platform for licensed cannabis farms and dispensaries. Hodge brings the energy throughout the episode as he talks about his college experiences, his takeaways from his first startup, Fade, and the problem that Canna seeks to solve. With that being said, stay safe and enjoy the rest of this episode.
2: Well, Hodge, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you here. I think the first time that we met you was actually at the Sogal pitch competition. I think that was in November and we came in a little late and um, we, I think a few pitches went by and then you came in, you had your like ripped jeans, you had a bomber <laughs> yeah. jacket, I think. And I was, I literally was like, there's no way, dude. there's no way this guy comes in here like that, wins it. And then you do. And then <laughs> we, we come up to you after. And then, I was like damn this guy's legit and we talked to you a little bit after and then from there we just heard more about your company um, on LinkedIn a lot and then and we're excited to finally
0: collaborate with you i'm excited to be here man i'm radically brown and unapologetically <laughs> honest i don't know i think it's a mixture no of no but <laughs> <And we're, we're, laughs>
3: lo- we love that i remember like like i said like we came in i think it was one of our um a couple of times when we visited capital factory and you yeah. know we were sitting there they were pitching we're like okay cool cool and then you just take the stage and like a solid five minutes i promise you that like whoever's listening to this if you ever see this man pitch like you cannot not hear you like you will literally like have all the attention of everyone in the room and I don't know how you do it, but it's freaking amazing. I like your energy, your spirit, like you can see the enthusiasm in your idea and like why. Um, and I really hope that, you know, who, for whoever comes across your way in the future that they can see it too. So a little bit before, um, about, you know, even going into where you are right now, like, tell us a little bit about like your background, like, where you, where are you from? Where were you born? How was college like for you? And, you know, how did all of that get to here?
0: Well, It's nothing short of a roller coaster, but (laughs) I was born and raised in Dubai. I went to an Indian school there, a little bit in IB. Um, And then, you know, when I was in high school, I was super, super passionate about robots, funny enough. So um, three years I competed in this thing called the World Robot Olympiad and ended up winning it. We actually got a team together that built this um, unmanned like quadcopter that was controlled by LEGO Mindstorms NXT. (laughs) <laughs> they could fly mm-hmm. and do like 3d scans and maps of like world heritage sites and you know one thing led to another i won that thing i applied to a couple of like colleges in america uh U sent me an offer letter with a with a the name scholarship on it and when i opened it up i saw it was still going to be 55 grand a year <laughs> so oh, I love also. generous amounts. <laughs> yeah wow dude thanks for the five thousand dollars year scholarship who do you think i am like, i might be from dubai but i'm still from a lower middle class family you know what i'm saying but um, yeah, and UTR LinkedIn was the university that offered me a scholarship for ride, And they were like, hey, if you come down here in your first semester, we'll put you to work at one of our robotics research institutes. You know, they hadn't really offered that to undergraduate before. So I was sold. I got my visa, came down here, and I started to get to work. And in that first semester, I realized that I hated robotics, and I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love like, I love robots. I love like thinking about like the future of work. I love automation, but at the end of the day, like as a scientist or like somebody who's working in the lab and a super extrovert, and I think that was the first sign to where I knew that I wasn't like, you know, built to survive quarantine for a long time. <laughs> like sitting around making little changes and watching like the actuarial evidence of the robot come into play and making every micro decision over and over and over and over again, uh, you know, in a room pretty alone with, like, one or two other guys. It just didn't work out. So Mm-mm. I was, like, deuces. And then I started to get involved a lot in, like, on the college campus. So from, you know, StuCo ambassadorships to, like, Greek life. And, yeah. And then I got selected for this crazy thing called the Red Bull Can You Make It Challenge. Have I told you guys about that?
3: I think – I knew.
2: I heard – I read about it, the
0: 1,200-mile yeah. – yeah, so uh, correct. it was That's it was sad. insane. My friend it is about definitely. to do it again. Eric, his team just got selected. But essentially, what it is, it's kind of like the Amazing Race. So they select 150 teams from around the world who went through like an online video uh, and voting competition, and they basically select these college teams and put them in five random cities across Europe. They take your cash, your cards, your phones, and you have to travel like bartering Red Bull for a food, stay and, and like, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> It was 11 days. Yeah. Yeah. So the actual thing was seven days. And we went from Paris to Florence. It was around 1,200 miles in seven. So it was wild. There was actually a night where we traded two Red Bulls to stay in a five-star hotel.
3: Really?
0: Yeah. I think that's when I learned I was a pretty good salesman. (laughs)
3: Yeah. And Jordan to would be like, okay, I got this.
0: It was random. We were uh, at a train station in Munich. You know, like eight train conductors were like, yeah, you're not coming in. Uh, we had to like turn all these people into the police and we we're like, ah, whatever. So my uh, Eric and Jen, my teammates went along with this other team who bartered like a whole like bottom floor of a hostel for themselves. And then there was the Aloft Hotel right outside the train station line, I saw a couple of people in a circle. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to just work my way into this conversation. So I pulled out, whipped out a cigarette, asked the guy for a light and I had my own just to get into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, was the meeting of the board of directors for the Starwood Hotels and Resorts Group. And I was telling him about what we were doing, and he's like, hey, what do you uh what do you think about staying in a five-star hotel tonight if you guys just record the video and post it to the to the Red Bull app? And I was like, I'm sold. <laughs> Let's go. So he made a couple of calls, pulled up this van, uh, stuck me and the other two in, and then next thing we know, we showed up to the Westin and got like one of the penthouse suites.
3: That just that, that story uh, just took a whole turn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I can just really
0: I
2: thought you were going to be like living in villages and stuff. but no. Nah, dude, that was the fourth team. day.
0: On the on Sorry. the first day for nine hours, no one was like willing to barter my Red Bull for a ticket from Florence to Venice. The second day we couldn't <laughs> barter anything. So we're pretty much on an empty stomach and like, you know, sleeping outside the train station, a sleeping bag when it was like insanely cold out. But the third, fourth day, I started to get a hang for it and found my spot. And, you know, then we started pushing upwards. It was dope.
3: no it sounds dope it sounds yeah yeah. it sounds like honestly it sounds like an adventure it was it was what what did you what did you so out of all that right like looking back at it i mean obviously there were probably some very difficult times you were like what the Mm -hmm. hell is happening but like what were some key takeaways that you're like no this is worth it
0: people are good you know Mm -hmm. i never thought that like i i didn't see that wholly until i had that experience because The people that we met who bought us food who traded us for travel who welcomed us into their homes strangers you know who like helped us build the stories that we had it was just such an incredible experience and it was especially like that was the time when a lot of islamophobia was going around like Mm -hmm. there was like terrorist attacks in france you know it it was really like bad timing but still at the same time people were so welcoming uh and just so good and you know did whatever they could to help us move on to the next step and that's when I don't know, it, it inspired something in me. And I also met a lot of like other like college students over there who were working on startups. And that's when I got my first little kick uh, to check out startups, what it was about. And yeah, it was awesome. I got, I got super inspired and, you know, funny enough, like I actually didn't end up coming back to the States after that trip. So I talked to my university, this is another crazy story, but so I talked to my university, <laughs> um, you know, I got all this letter, I got everything they needed and I left and it was mid-semester. So on my way back, I'd actually left the class. And if you're an international student, you know what this is about. And Mm -hmm. I was enrolled part-time and I was going to get the rest of my hours for the year in through summer classes, right? But because they took away my phone, the international office reached out to me and I had no way of communicating back with them. And I get on the flight from Paris and this is after like a whole week of raging. I'm like on this like adrenaline rush. We barely slapped. I get on a plane from Paris, I get to Washington, you know, my... Teammates go through the U.S. citizens line, and I'm going through the plebe line. The guy uh, looks at my I-20 document. He puts a weird highlighter circle on it. And then when I get up to the counter to go into the transfer flight to Dallas, he's like, hey, man, you need to come in with me. You know? And next thing I know, he's walking me to Homeland Security. And then the officer behind the table tells me my I-20 was terminated, and I had two options. It was either to voluntarily choose to leave the country and cancel my visa or you know, go to a judge, contest my case. And if that went wrong, I'd get deported for five years. So that was pretty crazy. And I called the university and they're like, no, nope, we can't do anything. So I chose to leave. And what's even worse is I told them, you know, all of my family's in Dubai. I was born and raised there. Here's my permanent residence. Like let me, you know, let me fly there. Like put send me to an airport there. Next thing you know, you know, I pass out a flight. I wake up. They take me through CDC. Um, like so the Charge the Gale the airport in Paris. Like I'm being like police escorted everywhere. People are looking at me weird. You know this no. tall brown dude with a gnarly <laughs> undercut and frat T-shirt and shorts and berries. like you know, I was in just like, like yeah. You're
3: just you're just like what's up yo? Like, yeah, I can just feel like-, <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I have no idea what's going on. I told my mom, and she was freaking out, all in good reason. She's like, "We send you to America to study engineering, and you're doing this Red Bull travel thing and kicked." The, like you know, I I can't even <laughs> reach her, and so I pass out on the plane. Oh, did you not I know, know they that knew it was a I rebel that? challenge, but none of them expected that, you know, okay, to,
3: good. to turn out For, like this.
0: Yeah. Okay, so this I pass on the flight. I wake up. I see that everybody around me is Indian. Right. And that's OK, because there are a lot of Indian people in Dubai. And then I saw the air hostess walk out in Asari. And I was like, holy shit. I think they put me on a flight to the wrong country. <laughs> and next thing I know on the uh, on the speakers, they announced you know, it's like Namaskar. Welcome. You're landing in New Delhi, India. Oh, no. So oh, yeah, they sent me to the whole wrong country. And I was <laughs> stuck there for five days, like trying to figure out. Because like He's Delhi people Indian... are hard. Yeah.
3: Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you, my lord, you, so instead of going to Dubai, you literally just went directly to India. Yep. This. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. And that's where I was like, I had to make a huge case with my parents. I was like, foreign, pretty much like there in Hyderabad for like three months. Figuring it out, you know, getting my parents to trust in me again to send me back here. Um, and that's when I got my huge startup kick, because while I was in Hyderabad with nothing to do, I started watching Silicon Valley. And mm-hmm. I was like, I have to be the dumbest person in the world if there was all this opportunity for geeks like these guys to build a billion dollar company. And I myself never saw the opportunity to take advantage of that, you know.
3: Yeah.
0: And yeah. So next thing I know, I was in a flight to Dubai. While I was there, I interned for my first startup, which was an experiential marketing startup called Purple Glow. And we worked on a couple of cool activations for like McLaren and um, they have this crazy water park called Wild Wadi and stuff. And then I came back to America and I interned for the next startup called Musa, which is pretty cool. It was like a VR uh, like video production company. And we did everything from like concerts to like uh, all these like real estate tours and all of that stuff. And then Finally, I'm like, I'm going to get into robotics. And I went back, second shot. And that was the first company that was in that just shut down. So we raised like 200 grand for it. And we realized hardware was really hard and you keep losing money. And that's what led to my actual startup that I founded called Fade. And that was like that barber booking app company.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: So, yeah, about Fade, right? I think, well, actually, tracking back a little bit before that. Your internship experiences were really different. Like you had experiential marketing and then sales director and then robotics engineering. I feel like most people, especially in school, in college at least, they go one sector or like one one field. They stay in one field. They'll get all their internships in that field. What do you think was the like main benefit for experiencing all those things before starting FADE? Like, was there something that it gave you like maybe a different perspective, different absolutely.
0: I knew that I wanted to start my own company. And I know that as a founder, you have to wear multiple different hats. And the reason why I went to do all those uh, kind of internships in the first place was to figure out what I wanted to build and to like understand what it takes for a founder to lead a company from zero to one, you know, so it was super insightful. And I think a lot of what I learned from those internships is still helping me today. Um, But yeah, it it was great. And I'm glad that I made that decision because that choice over there is really different, right? Are you trying to build a career in something that is predetermined and you already specifically know where you want to be 25 years? Or do you kind of have no idea? And at the same time, you want to build up your profile. So worst case scenario, when you're out of college, you're appealing to people who want to recruit you. Or two, you want to get into starting your own company or being an early employee in something special. So I chose to go with the latter. So I think transitioning to
2: fade. Um, from what I understood when I was researching you and a little bit about your background, Fade was a booking platform for both barbers, and then it was a way for people to look, pretty much find more customized barbers for their kind of haircut. Absolutely. Uh, so is that kind of the... Yeah,
0: so you hop on, you tell me about your okay. age, your ethnicity, your hair type, like texture, and then we personalize barber recommendations to your hair type. What yeah. did you
3: get? Go-
2: okay. And I'm assuming that's... A- bunch of like AI stuff that goes behind the scenes in terms of recommendations. Because yeah. I watched an interview and you were saying you're using public data sets for that instead of you know having to actually find all that data.
0: Yeah, I mean, what people don't realize when they're building out early sales for their company is a lot of times they're public data sets about their direct customer base. So with that interview specifically, I think you were talking about, I was talking about us being able to market directly to barbers. So like the barber license directory is public information. There's their emails, their phone numbers. You know, so we just launched like drip campaigns and stock conversion from that because we had a hot list of leads that we could convert into paying customers. But, yeah, the public data set for users we were building, they gave us themselves because, honestly, black and brown dudes are terrified of going to a barber who <laughs> will do the <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and we get our haircuts the most frequently, you know, by, was it 2030 or 2040, America is going to be a minority-majority state where most yeah. of the people living in this country are going to be black, brown, Asian, uh, and from all over the world. And white people are going to be minorities. So that was our thesis with fame is, you know, the, the men's grooming economy was largely untapped. There's a huge trend that men are starting to take care and pay more attention to themselves. And we were using predictive analysis to pretty much build like a single one-stop shop for men's grooming, right? Whether it was getting your haircut or finding the right product or, um getting inspiration for where you can go with your current style sorry where a
2: lot of barber is pretty receptive to oh my god
0: it was a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> man i think that was fade was my biggest less like experience from the school of hard knocks there's so many things that you just don't understand when you're building a product you know and out of them one of my biggest mistakes like the biggest mistake was the fact that i was too confident in myself as a founder and didn't appreciate the value of a customer's insight. So before the product even went live for almost a year to a year and a half, you know, we spent time over-engineering, building this grand vision for a product and preparing to launch an app that never launched. And all the relationships that we build with barbers would slowly burn off because you know the product wasn't good for them to use. And finally, by the time we launched, um, a company called Squire announced their $8 million Series A, which is a yc backed company. And then Square, the payments platform, announced they were making their booking app for free. And when we look at our major source of acquisition, uh, which was like Instagram, Facebook ads, and our lead gen funnel, we were outspent 32X, and there was no way I could keep the company alive. I didn't have clout to raise that much money as a founder. So we decided to shut it down. But overall, like the one thing that I would do You know, as the founder, if I went back and I think Fade would still be alive and probably be a really big company, is I would have interviewed 200 to 300 barbers. I would have found their biggest like hair on fire problem and build a shitty looking, just able to use solution where I charge them to use it. Right. And if I could have paid that 10 to 100 people would pay to use that thing, then now I know because I'm iterating with them because they're putting money and they're giving me direct feedback the next phase of the product that I'm building and build it after uh, they've demonstrated a, a need to use it. So
3: in both yeah. like the 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 start and end of fade, like did you like, you know, did you have mentors that you kind of went to for seeking advice or was this just like a blind like I'm just gonna do it and I'm just gonna experiment.
0: Initially it was blind, but the reason I came up with the idea is because UT LinkedIn where I went to school, they had a mass pitch competition where mm-hmm. the winner would get 10 grand and they were looking at promising startups. So the first version of Fade that I had is like, you get an app where you book a barber and they come into your home and cut your hair. (laughs) So (laughs) needless to say, it was a horrible idea and I got ripped on by the judges when I presented. And that was the first time I got burned on stage. (laughs) And then, you know, we got accepted into the Mass Challenge Accelerator after that. And I think that was kind of like the, the, the turning point in my startup career because we got this robust program it was like an MBA program for startups where experienced investors, marketers, executives, startup founders have sold theirs. And angel investors came and gave us classes on building a successful company, you know. And after that, then I became a serious founder and started to ship on product, building customer relationships, fundraising and kind of went into that sphere. But, yeah, actually, getting back to you, the reason I think I am so good today is because I've pitched over a thousand times in the last three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you just hey. like, you learn you know, at first you wear your suit, you look really pretty and handsome and you get on the stage uh, and, you and then you use park. a lot of buzzwords. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. And then you get, yeah, no, we, we see that all the time. Even like at school with someone, when people are trying to initially pitch and something that we always try to do with like e-club or even at ETD is try to really like just listen in and just be like no like this doesn't sound good or we don't understand this and people just get like once they get ripped apart they just refuse to come back on because they're like oh I can't do this anymore it's just not for me because you come in like you said so confident knowing that you know everything and like you just are so excited Um, but even with like these pitch competitions, right, for you being able to, or even like finding accelerator programs or these pitch competitions or even mentors, like what, how did you go about finding these things? And for anyone that might be interested in like wanting to go down a similar path of like trying to get into pitch competitions or even just like go try something, what's a good place to start? Because I think people are just always confused about where to start.
0: One thing that I recommend, if you think you're going to start a company, go to Y Combinator startup school program. It's free and they teach you everything that you need to know about what it takes to successfully launch and fundraise for a company. Um, That's just such an amazing resource. And if you finish that program, I can guarantee you you pretty much know where to look after. You know, they go into fundraising, product iteration, building your team very extensively. The second, if you're based in DFW, you know, Capital Factory, uh, Dallas Startup Week, which I hope will be taken virtual pretty soon. Uh, And a lot of these other organizations like the deck are such an amazing resource. And I'm assuming even you have an entrepreneurship club, right? That's who I'm talking Mm -hmm. to right now. Mm -hmm. Who's kind of the link between, you know, the outside world where people can get access to funding and resources and mentors to student life on campus. So those are the two people that I'd look at, but definitely if, if you're starting a company, do not miss Y Combinator startup school. It's just epic.
3: There's just a lot of fundamentals with that. And I think with, with, uh, you mentioned I remember when we talked once about venture deals
0: like Oh yeah, online program. Venture deals is a little bit more sophisticated. And you know, this is another conversation I have frequently too. You know, everybody talks about the startup ecosystem, but nobody's built a robust program to get the other side of the table on our team. VC mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think Venture Deals is a really good resource. And, you know, the one amazing thing that you can do without even building your own startup is to become a person who's passionate about the community, give it back, build the relationships, and get in as an associate at a fund. Because all your job will be is to get them deal flow and give them higher level perspective review uh, on the incoming startups, and then when you gain that experience, you can climb up the ladder. But yeah, I think
3: like analyzing startups, or even like because right now, like you know, even taking seed fund um, at UTD, like there's so much to learn about startups, and like like no two startups. I love that y'all have a seed fund. But like fundamentally. Yeah, it is. It's chaos. It's literal, like BC is literal chaos. And the beauty <laughs> of it is that you you literally, you have to be so focused to just dist- like eliminate all the distractions to figure out what is it that people aren't telling you? Like, what is it that, like, I know for a fact that like, even looking at it from a venture capital perspective, such a cool experience, because I think like for anybody that wants to even like go into startup or entrepreneurship, like being able to understand that makes you like introspect. Like it's just like what what's the BS you're telling yourself to just like go by, right? Um Absolutely So I I I think if if UTD I think it's gonna be growing too with Seed Fund. It's something that they started pretty recently as well. And so we're kind of just like in the foundational stages of like building it up, trying to experiment like how to even like build this. But in terms of getting mentors or some of the people that you just like see and meet it, it's a whole different like mindset and it's really cool at least for you like I remember when we talked a little bit about about venture deals um it's yeah. great that you are you have one foot here and one foot there to really understand like what is like who am I pitching to like how do I get understand the investor mindset
0: how do you become a good founder by building a good company and understanding the psychology the levers and the interests of a venture capitalist if that's where you're planning to raise money from If you don't know fundamentally how their, like, fund works, their fund structures, like, you know, what are Mm -hmm. their incentives, then how are you going to pattern match to give them, tell them the things that they need to hear and then show them the path to light. So, Venture Deals was really good, especially when I got to, like, because did he do the online course?
3: The online course, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Epic, yeah, because I got to review term sheets with the community of people and draft Mm -hmm. series A, think about all these different terms that I hadn't heard of before, Mm -hmm. so.
3: And yeah, yeah. For, for anyone that's listening, you know, if, if you don't know what venture deals is, but you're super interested in getting into VC or even startups, like highly recommend. Like it's an online course, it's free. Um, and you get to meet really cool people, work with people. Um, and I don't I don't think some I don't know if there's any other program like this. Do you know of any other ones?
0: Um, no, not really. Specifically from like the venture side. I know yeah, there are a lot yeah. of organizations like uh I can't think of them right now. Contrary capital, rough draft ventures. A lot of venture funds that are specifically focused towards enabling students to get into the space as associates. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, from, from a class perspective, none that I can think of. I know there are a lot of Stanford lectures that are online on YouTube.
2: Harshini, going back on seed fund if someone was listening to this and they were interested in possibly taking seed fund in a future semester how would they go about doing that um
3: it's a, so seed right fund is a referral based class um and honestly like if you do want to like learn more about it it's you you know contact Brian Chambers um he's an amazing teacher
0: the GOAT. And, uh,
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so that man will literally like he's an amazing person to be around um and it's there's so much that you learn from just like like from what he says and some of the advice that he gives, um, and I know Farhash, what what was so what was your relationship like with with Brian at Capital Factory, and what did you learn from him with with the yeah. company right now?
0: So fun fact is Brian actually went to UTA and he was in Greek life too. I didn't know that until I met him, and he was telling me a little bit of the past. Uh, really surprised me, but I've had an incredible relationship with him and Capital Factory because what's funny enough is we got accepted into Capital Factory for fade because we want the pre-accelerator pitch competition and they gave us a golden egg which is like three months of free co-working and access to the accelerator perks except the mm-hmm. ir team and then while i was going through that program and helena is really you have to give a shout out to you you know she kept a really great relationship with us for showing me the ropes and i was keeping her posted on our progress and you know that's when the canna like transition happened So when we shut down Fade and our friend from Oklahoma gave us a call, told him that he fired his grandma for being a bad trimmer and needed us to help him with his harvest, Uh, that's when he pitched us to build the company. And I literally told that to Helena like a couple of days after when I was marinating on the idea and she was like, I think I feel like you're on the right track. Here's like what I would recommend do X, Y and Z. And then, you know, if you guys are making progress, keep me posted. I think you'd be a good fit for the accelerator. So like one month into starting the company, we pitched to the accelerator and then we got in the program. And that's when I started building a relationship with Brian. He's been super instrumental in helping us with our fundraising, giving me a lot of advice into going, you know, beyond just this like pre-seed stage startup. Yeah. He's the goat. Like the way he thinks about fundraising is so interesting to me. Uh, we always like I just know. chop it up about different <laughs> different strategies. <laughs>
3: Yep. So with, with Hannah, right. So where, so walk us through kind of like the the initial. So you, you kind of shut down Fade and you went into this new, new venture. Um, mm-hmm. What was like from start to finish, you know, like, what was it like validating the idea? What challenges did you face? And um, what were some things that went through your mind of like, okay, this is something I have to consider. Um, Cause I'm sure like, you know, I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, it's so, it's crazy. So I like I didn't even have the idea for this company. Like, it was the fourth day after I shut down Fade. And then my CTO, Brad, got that call from Z. And he's like, surprise, you know, I have a cannabis farm in Oklahoma. Fired his grandma. And he's like, dude, I really need help because I need to get the produce ready to send to my dispensaries. Because we have nothing on the shelves right now. Like, I didn't even know, cannab- like, medical cannabis was legal in Oklahoma at this point. So we literally got in the car, drove up. And while we were there and we were trimming, he's like, hey, dude, you know, And he, because I hadn't told, like come out to the public about me shutting down Fade. I was still figuring out what to do next. And he's like, dude, I'm a $10 supercuts guy. I'm never gonna use this app, but you know, if you can build the same thing for me and I can just push a button and hire people who come and trim my harvest, like you make me the happiest person in the world and I'll give you money to do it. So on our drive back from Oklahoma, I had a lot of thoughts and my mind was racing because I told him no, I was like, no way. And next thing you know, I came up with 15 questions. I did a lot of research about the marketplace, where it's headed. Um, you know, the cannabis gigs itself was making 40% of the 300,000 people that are being employed by this industry. And this is before like five states legalized that are now employing another major part of the workforce, right? And it just, it was just kind of an aha moment. So that next day I committed to building Canna. My CTO from freed came along. Um, I called one of my really good friends, Vu, who was actually building Craterland, a video sharing marketplace uh, out of New York. It was backed by 645 in Cornell, and he was like surprised, we're actually winding down Craterland. What's like Canna about? And next week we bought him down for our first paid trim session with Z. Um, and one of the biggest learning experiences though with Canna is we did the exact opposite that we did with Fade. We decided we were not going to push a single product. Uh, and we were just gonna focus on talking to as many customers as fast as I can until we understand a core need that they were willing to pay for to solve. And Z gave us in terms to six different farms. And all of them were like, if you send us trimmers, we'll pay you for it. And we're like, okay, now we'll start a gig staffing platform or like just like a website, right? And one of the things that really changed it for us is like, now there's this whole new movement called the no code movement, right? Mm -hmm. Where you don't even need to know code to actually build live performing MVPs. So we stitched together like Zapier with a type form and pushed it live as job requests to our webflow. And we onboarded 14 customers who are now paying us to actively hire 300 plus workers a month. And we still don't have like a a web-based app or an actual product out there. And what we did is like by building that and having almost no product, we worked and we understood the challenges that we faced as a staffing company. We understood that, you know, the inefficiencies with respect to scale and the problems that we'd have to solve. And that's the tech we're building right now to enable scale across not just Oklahoma, but across the U.S. You know, so highly recommend just talking to customers every single day, understanding their hair on fire problem, because you know, if you give them a nano fiber cloth that costs five thousand dollars to put their the fire out, or you know, a brick, they'll still use the brick and the brick is called the MVP. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So with
3: the with the people that you talked to, right? The customers that you've talked to over and over again, what were some of the key issues that they're facing? Like that you were like, Okay, this is what we need to focus this company on.
0: When we talk about a legal cannabis market and people were hiring for the job one of the biggest problems that people have is there's no way of translating black market experience into legal. Like, how do you know if some random dude pulls up on you and submits a resume and zip recruiter and tells you he has five years of combined experience working at farms in Humboldt County? There, you can do reference checks. There's no way to prove them. The entire process from top of the funnel to getting hired is so bad that on average, each cannabis business, and there are like 39,000 of them in the US right now, each of them see six out of 10 employees turnover in the first two months like it's insane and each bad or turned higher cost them like $7,500. And nevertheless, you know, there are a lot of people who come in with misaligned incentives. And if you get robbed or stolen from, you know, you could talk, like I talked to one of our farms and, you know, it took us a little while to build a relationship with him, but now it's phenomenal. And he had a hundred thousand dollars worth of product and equipment stolen from him at one point, you know, and it's crazy. And that's when we were like, okay, if we can find good people, we give them training for free. We teach them how to do these jobs and we pay for their background checks. We give them a general liability insurance so the employer is protected. Now we're making them the most appealing candidate for hire in the industry, especially for entry level jobs that you need to hire for on demand. And then on top of that, if we give them access to upskilling right, and free education so they can learn more about other higher level jobs and transition upwards, We're talking about building a career technology company, and then there's a lot of upsell opportunity with respect to the employer for making difficult processes like banking, which is almost inaccessible and having access to insurance available through one platform. So we started off as that gig staffing agency, and as we started to solve and truly become subject matter experts in cannabis hiring by becoming businesses who staffed in the first place, we realized the product that we needed to build at large to kind of enable the economies of scale to become that billion dollar company. So it's been an awesome journey. We've seen a lot of interesting stuff. You know, as a guy who doesn't even smoke weed, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in weed farms almost every single day and I see so much like beyond the eye I can see. Uh, it's yeah. been amazing. And and I think one of my favorite things about cannabis is just how collaborative and accepting the community is. You know, they're very easy to work with and they love people. And that's why they're, they're getting the medicine out.
3: Yeah.
2: I think in the name itself, Canada, you kind of are, I'd imagine a lot of people that come across your startup immediately think that you probably have contact with the cannabis or with the marijuana that's growing. Software. But you are strictly, from what I understand, a software platform, right? That you connect people that are looking for gigs and looking to transition into a full time career. And then the businesses that are trying to. Hire exactly. And dude,
0: that's in. such a good point. Because like when I started the company, we had like investors who already signed term sheets and I couldn't get it into a bank account. like 30 banks denied us bank accounts even though we were purely software and extremely open and upfront with them about what we do and five of them actually issued a bank account and then like pulled it after when one of them pulled midwire it was terrifying you know and now we have an amazing banking partner and we're actually able to give an fdic insured bank account to a lot of the, the companies that we work with and help like the farmers transition from cash to an actual it's so, for example, my, I was just talking to my co-founder, Z, the other day, and uh, funny enough, he's, that, he's the guy who went to help in our first time, right? And mm-hmm. he was telling me that, like, his, our other co-founder, Alexa, usually drives down to Dallas and has to pay, you know, and, like, other, like, farm owners themselves were telling us, like, they pay their credit card bills in cash. So it's like $10,000 to $20,000 worth they carry in cash monthly and go deposit it. And any given moment, these guys have 50 to 100 grand lying in a locked bag in their car. You know, a lot of them have to get saved, armed security because of cash. And now when we're talking about the coronavirus, you know, cash is seven times more likely to spread contaminants um, yeah. than uh, digitally like digital transactions. And it's also fucked up because when you look at tax, federal taxes and how people pay for it, and part of my friends. But um, like cannabis businesses pay apparently 15 to 20% of gross income without taking out COGS as a part of the 280 tax code to the feds. And the feds won't even give them banking access, you know, when these are stand-up people who are in an extremely over-regulated industry trying to make their mark. So that was my little soapbox, but I think it's really (laughs) interesting. But at the same time, because it's so antiquated, (laughs) I think that's why there's such an amazing opportunity for startups who care about them. Uh, to build products that are special and can scale. So things are going to be changing rapidly and I'm excited about it.
2: Yeah, I think uh, another thing that I found the, that was pretty interesting was that when we went to SoGal, I think and one of them, you were talking about workers and wanting to empower people Absolutely. that were disenfranchised by marijuana, you know? Because until now, because you can't just like decriminalize something that's being criminalized for so long and then those communities that have been affected for that many years. Um, but why? Why do you think it's so important to do that? Especially When we, when, we look at the topography
0: York, of the asset class in the U.S., you can clearly say the people who own the most money are pretty white and privileged, right? And cannabis itself, like Reefer Madness was the film that started the propaganda, that like was the campaign that brought it into prohibition. And it came because cotton farmers were terrified, tobacco farmers were terrified, and the pharmaceutical industry was like, you know, if this plant has the medicinal benefits that it really does, then we're gonna be shit out of luck. And it, what what's crazy is like like marijuana was a condescending way to talk about the drug with respect to the Latinx population and you know, the jazz community. Funny enough, there's a story about Lance Armstrong. He was sweating bricks because he was coming back from a UN meeting in an airport and he had weed in his bag. And Ronald Reagan picked up the bag and walked it through customs because he asked him, Why are you so yeah, you know? He, he committed a he committed a felony, Ronald Reagan the guy who issued war on drugs transferred across an airport. Either way, uh, when you look at people who were systematically disenfranchised, they're primarily black and brown. And, you know, from my perspective, if the government is seriously not talking about reparations uh, and giving people what they are owed for the the toll that is taken on their lives, I think it's not fair. Um, and I also think that consciously and equitably when companies at large are profiting off of the green rush, if people of color... Uh, and people of disenfranchised communities are not considered into being giving equitable opportunities in space, that it shouldn't be in the conversation in the first place. So we're extremely passionate about that. Like 30% of the workers that we placed were either unemployed veterans or previously incarcerated you know, people who are now second-chain citizens taking their next step. And we're excited about that. And I think this industry will provide a huge opportunity for those people.
2: How did the, the whole COVID... Um, process effect your beta? Because I read somewhere it was supposed to launch in March, our, but I'm assuming
0: now So our beta was like, fast track. We reinvested all the management. money that we were going to put towards marketing to hire okay. more contractors to push our app out faster. Um, it's about our growth plan. So we've been building a very robust operations and onboarding kind of Bible for our company. And we had it in place, and this was the month where we were going to go from actively deploying 300 workers to 1,000 plus. We had to put that on pause because it's too risky. But, you know, that gave us a good opportunity to understand things that were limiting us from scaling. You know, one was we were doing in-person training sessions and we could only fit 15 to 20 people at a time. And with the pandemic, we realized that's, you know, putting people at risk. And then that's when we were like, we have to expedite, can use launch? And we have to build even better content and we have to build in a way that people get passionate about it. So a lot of our efforts that were in-person are being shifted to virtual. And what's cool, too, is for B2B startups, for enterprise startups, people selling to older industries, there's this contraction that's happening to their sales funnel where people are being forced to be more accepting of virtual transactions. You know, they're sitting at home. They have a lot of time and they pick up the phone. And if you catch them in a sales for something that they're excited about now, they're like, okay, I don't need to handshake meet you in person. We can figure out another way to do this demo. So I think my friend was telling me like his. Dad was like, I'm never going to use like Slack or Zoom or anything like that. (laughs) And then like they adopted it for their team because they didn't have an option and productivity went up 40%. And now he's like, (laughs) so. Yeah,
2: I think uh, before we kind of wrap up. I do want to ask a, a, few, a quick question on fundraising and where you guys are at with that, because I know with cannabis, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like investor clauses that prevent people from invest stuff like that are kind of considered yeah. taboo per se in the business. Community. It's been really interesting. So you we know, have this conversation
0: with, with capital factories, investor relations, to, relations team too. Um, one, you know, when you look at the large scheme of things, funds just aren't actively deploying anymore because of like, you know, every, a lot of like DLP's assets being tied in stock markets and they're just not able to make capital calls. Uh, It's unfortunate, but there are still a lot of other funds that beefed up and they're actively deploying. And right now is where they're finding and funding the best companies uh, at reasonable valuations. Uh, Two, you know, our pre-seed round has been pretty successful so far. We did have a a pretty sizable investor pull out because of what was happening. But it's okay because we have enough runway to survive for a couple of months and we have revenue coming in. So like I mentioned, we were one of the three or two fortunate ones. Um, It's really interesting landscape for vice companies. Alcohol, sex tech, gambling, uh, you know, sometimes even esports, and then cannabis is considered a vice company. And like you mentioned, funds have vice clauses and trickle down positions from LPs that just don't enable them to fund. What we've done is really interesting. We told that we're not really going to accept money from institutional cannabis and just like investors, and we're going to find a lot of institutional investors and prove to them that this is the future of work. So, right now on our cap table, everybody that we have is. You know, a seasoned angel investor or uh, an institutional one like Mockingbird, which took part in a pre seed. And we're doing the exact same thing for our seed round. So, but if you are starting a cannabis or vice related company, though, um, you have to have <laughs> all your stuff in line. And you have to really like work three to four, five X harder than any normal company to raise that round. And I think, you know, the more sophisticated you can become as a founder, the more advantageous you can be in your positioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: For in general, like you know, overall, I think right now with with where um, everyone's at, there's a lot of time that people have on their hands. Um, what are some I think for our generation, upcoming, like you know, people that are in college right now, or even just are just exploring, you know, the the plan B options of like, oh, you know, I don't maybe not, I'm not wanting to go into a predetermined like path. I want to do something of my own. Um, what are some important problems that you think our generation needs to really focus on, like that they can spend time on, like either skill building or even just like enabling themselves to be put in a position where they can act as, like, change makers.
0: For a lot of the kids who are in marketing school, like, understand what a growth marketer is or a growth hacker is and learn what it takes to grab that <laughs> position because it's going to be very sought after and we're going to be paid a lot of money for a long time. You know, automation just isn't there yet with respect to managing campaigns. And, uh, you know, I think that's, like, a really good avenue. The second for people who want to be founders or get into early stage startups, um, like I mentioned, it's really not a big time commitment. YC startup school, and then taking an understanding of uh, what the landscape of a startup is would be really impactful because one thing that I wish I did when I was in college is I worked at those three companies, but it was like very early, right? Like pre-seed or it was a small business or a startup that was just getting kicked off. Um, I wish that I went and I found like the hottest startups in, you know, Texas or even in the U.S. And I I went to them and I said, hey, I'll work for you for free as long as I can have your logo on my pitch deck when I start my next company, (laughs) right? That's the way to go about
3: it.
0: Yeah, seed, series A, series B, stage companies always need talent, always need extra hand, and I think that's a huge opportunity for college students to get into, because you will have no idea what kind of impact that'll have. You know, especially coming out of college, having a resume with some of those big names on your uh, on your resume. So, definitely look into that. And other than that, I don't know. You know, take your time to live and enjoy college. Like, don't take it too seriously. Um, mm-hmm. and while you're there, meet a lot of people who you want to surround yourself with for the next 10 years and ask them, you know, if there was something interesting or a problem that they're passionate about, how you could do something to solve it. Um, Yeah, you know, I'm very easy I to be find beautiful. LinkedIn, Farhad Mayan on Twitter. That's all my social handles, and if anybody wants mm-hmm. some advice or wants me to review anything or help them in any way, I'm, I'm an open book, so thanks, thanks so much for having me, guys, and uh, I'm really Thank excited you. about Thank what's you. coming up next. And stay and safe, us- stay healthy, wash your hands, sanitize, and wear a mask.
3: Keep us posted with any new updates from your um, end. And we're super excited <laughs> to see what's ahead for you and
0: Canada. Absolutely.
3: All right. Thank you.